Everyone here are the ones with four-wheel drive. That's what mornings like this do. They let us know who has four-wheel drive and who does not. If you've got your Bibles, grab them. Go to Romans chapter 8. Uh, Romans chapter 8. We will get there eventually. Last week we started a series uh, that we're calling Who We Are. And the big idea of the series is that we're speaking about our identity in Christ, but not just our identity individually, but our identity corporately. Okay, and so the Bible has a lot to say about our identity individually, and it is great, and it is precious, and it is awesome, but sometimes what we forget is that we have an identity, or several identities, word pictures, as we're going to look at another one here again this morning, in the scriptures for who we are corporately, that none of us just individually is Jesus Christ, but together, as our corporate identity, we are his bride, as we looked at last week. We are his body, which we're going to look at next week, or last week, well, his body, which we'll look at next week. But today, we are also his family. We're his bride, his body, and his family. And for those of you that were here last week, we talked about how, as the bride of Christ, it connects us primarily with Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. And that we as his bride means that he is our groom or our husband, and how the primary implication of this, as you study the passages in Scripture that talk about us being his bride, is that we are to pursue purity. We are to pursue, pursue purity doctrinally, morally, in every way, so that we could be pure and spotless and blameless. And this is not working for our salvation. We saw that it's this, it's this matrix of the Father purchasing for us this purity, with the price of his son paying a dowry for us as his, as his bride, yet at the same time we are to value purity and we're not to play fast and loose with it. And this week, as we look at the church and our identity corporately as his family, we see that it connects primarily with God, with God the Father. The thing that makes us family more than anything else is that we all have the same Father, that we have been born again into a new family, a family that has its source in God the Father and being born again of his spirit. And the primary implication that we're going to see of us being family and having that as one of our corporate identities is that there's to be unity. There's to be unity, and as we just sang about, there's to be sincere love among us for each other. And the love of God, guys, is something that is totally supernatural. It's something that should make the world wonder. It really should. Um, of course, we've talked about this. I've mentioned this many times before that, you know, love, it, it almost has just the word. It, it doesn't really stir anything in us because we love our family and we love our favorite pizza. Um, you know, we love our wife and we love our favorite sports team. And so it's just kind of a junk drawer word that everything gets thrown into. But the love of God, the love of God, the agape love of God is something that is supernatural that he puts in us as his people. And we are to let this come out um, of us to the world in a way that is sacrificial, just like his love was sacrificial for us. You know, and I was just thinking as we were down here singing, um, just what an opportunity I guess we have um, as his people understanding this love what an opportunity we have to love the world because guys I, I know that you know this and we could go around and we could tell stories 
for a long time. But guys, we live in a broken world. <laughs> Amen? I mean, I, as we were singing, I, I, I don't know, my heart was just breaking just for a lot of individuals. Um, and I'm sure you guys can think of many right now yourselves too. They just don't understand what family is all about. And what it's all about is the love of a father. You know, none of us um, as family members, and each one of us probably as members of a physical earthly family in some way, shape, or form, one of the things that is absolutely true, okay, is that you don't get to choose whether or not you affect the culture of your family. Is that true? So sometimes uh, I admit I can wake up in the morning and, you know, I proverbially get up on the wrong side of the bed and I just kind of, and I just kind of, you know, shuffle my way out and grunt at people as I make my way to the coffee maker and then I take my first sip and I'm revived, praise the Lord. But, but you know, we, we see this in families all the time as you can think about other maybe members of your family that when they're grumpy, when you're grumpy, how it affects the rest of the family and not just grumpiness, but if there are graver sins and offenses and unforgiveness. Um, it doesn't affect just us, does it? And in the same way as we talk about this this morning, I say that because I want us to understand how important this is, is that, especially for all of you that call Mercy Hill home, um, you, you don't get to choose whether or not you affect the culture of our church family. It's something that is a privilege to be placed into the body of Christ universally, but also into a local body, Mercy Hill or anywhere else. But it's also a responsibility that's given to us to steward, that our attitude and our love for each other, our love for each other um, is important, and it will not affect, or the lack of it will not affect just you. It affects, it affects everybody. Um, there are a lot of places we could go to talk about um, the church being the family of God, and that was kind of my struggle this week was just with what passage to pick. We will be in Romans 8, but um, just real quickly, in kind of a flyover type way, you know, only 15 times in the Old Testament uh, is God ever referred to as our Father. It's very rare. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, um, this is one of the things that would have just stuck out about his ministry and his teaching, is that over 160 times, it, just in the Gospels, um, Jesus is constantly referring to God as his Father. And um, out of all the Gospels, I think 65 times in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus refers to God as the Father, but John just takes this and runs with it in a whole other way. And over 100 times, in John's gospel, Jesus refers to God as the Father. And usually he, almost always, he's speaking of God as my Father, about him personally. But at the very end of the book, in John chapter 20, after Jesus rises from the dead, Mary is the first one to meet the resurrected Lord in the garden. And she, he says her name, and he, she goes and she clings to him. And then he says to her in, in John 20, he says, Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But then he says this, go tell my brothers Go tell my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending, listen, to my father and your father, to my God and your God. 
that it's because of what Jesus Christ did in his death, burial, and resurrection that he made room for us at God's table. And he brought us in to the same relationship, the exact same relationship that he has with the Father, we can now have with the Father. Again, in John chapter 16, Jesus says to his disciples, in that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. Jesus says, listen, it's not just that, you know, I have this special relationship with God. I do have a special relationship with God. Nobody's seen the Father except the Son, and nobody knows the Son except the Father, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him, that He comes and He reveals Him, and now you and I have the same relationship with the Father that Jesus had, that positionally we have access to him. And so over in Romans chapter 8, if you want to go there, again, I could, we could go from Scripture to Scripture to Scripture. Um, but in Romans chapter 8, Paul is, you know, in the book of Romans, he's building out just this whole grand kind of picture of our soteriology or our salvation, we would say. Um, and he's talking about sin, and he's talking about that there's none righteous, no, not one. And then he's talking about how it's, it's of faith and not of works. And this is good news, because if it was of work, works in any sort of way, we would not be able to do it. But just simply receiving it by faith. Faith is connected to our weakness, that we just have to receive it, trust it, because there's nothing else we can do to earn it, because if there was, we wouldn't be able to do it. We're that deprived um, and inept spiritually. So it's only by faith, and now then that the Spirit comes and He works in us. And Romans chapter 8 is, has to be considered one of the kind of the mountaintops of Scripture. Of course, it ends with those famous verses about nothing being able to separate us from His love. But in Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 17 is primarily where we'll be. Um, we'll see that there are things that unite us as a family, things that our unity is to be built around. Um, and what I mean by that is this, is that you, many times people speak of unity in the church, and it's a good thing, and we should pursue unity, okay? I want to be as clear as I can on this. That's a good desire, but a lot of times what we want to do is we just want to sit around and go, unity, 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 we're unified, we're unified. And, and, and that's good, but unity more often than not, it's more of a fruit than a root. In other words, it's more of a byproduct of pursuing something else or being united around something else than it is just sitting around and just talking about being unified. You don't really aim for unity. Unity is something that's more produced. So it's kind of like this, and I think I've used this example to you guys before, but, you know, growing up, I played a lot of basketball, and so I was on a lot of basketball teams, and I was pretty close with a lot of those, with, with, with a lot of those guys, and I promise you, us teenage boys never once sat around and were like, Josh, share your heart with me. Tell me what's going on deep inside of you. I mean, we didn't do that at all, you know? I mean, we sat around, we played video games, and we went and played basketball. Then we went, back, went and, you know, somebody's house and ate all their food in their cupboard. Then we went back and played some more video games and played some, some basketball. But the unity that we had, the camaraderie that we had, was a byproduct of pursuing something else, mainly this sport or basketball, trying to win this championship, whatever. So it's, it's a fruit of that. And in the same way, what unites us as people is not just coming around and saying that we should be unified, but it is the truth of the gospel. That what Jesus Christ has done for us, that at, at the core, it is believing this gospel and pursuing this mission. 
that he set before us to do, that unity is going to be a byproduct of it. And so the more united a church is, I believe it's because the gospel is being clearly proclaimed and people of all sorts of tribes, tongues, languages, and nations, and backgrounds, and ethnicities are, can be built and welcomed into that. In other words, in biblical unity, there's always, always, always great diversity. Great diversity. And where you see people aiming for unity just for unity's sake, you get uniformity. That there is no diversity in it. Everybody looks the same, acts the same, it's just the same <laughs> because it's not built around the gospel. So Romans, Romans chapter 8, three things that unite us, that unite us as his family, as his family. Um, number one, we can all celebrate together the presence of the Spirit, the presence of the Spirit. Um, starting in verse 9 here, and for the first several verses, this is what he talks about. He says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ. So listen to what he's saying here. He's saying that if you have the Spirit of Christ, then you belong to Christ. And it's not possible to belong to Christ and not have the Spirit of Christ. That at the moment of salvation, the thing that changes your life is that now God, the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit, comes and lives inside of you. Now that which is holy can dwell which is that which is un- with that which is unholy, us. Why? Because we are covered By the blood of Jesus Christ, his sacrifice covers us, covers our sin. So now that which is holy, the Holy Spirit can come live inside that which is unholy, us. It is the Spirit of God that lives inside each and every one of us. And everybody who names Jesus Christ as Lord, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And part of that salvation is that the Holy Spirit now lives in you. And so look around. Everybody that names Jesus Christ as Lord has the Holy Spirit living inside of them. And that person, brothers and sisters, is a gift to you. They are a gift to me. We are all gifts to each other because of the treasure that has been placed inside of us. Um, this is something we should value and hold dear. I, I was struggling with whether or not to share this illustration because I have no idea how to tell it without making it sound like I've done something highly illegal. But I promise you I have not, okay? Uh, a few, uh, well, a while back, um, a friend of mine had to give me a sum of money for something, and he gave it to me in cash. And I met him in a gas station parking lot. And he rolls down his window and he hands me a Wendy's bag. And I was like, I already ate. Like, I'm good. You know, I'm here to get, you know, what we're done. He goes, no, no, no. It's in there. <laughs> and, so, and so I open it up. You know, I, I'm like, you know, there's, and there's a couple thousand dollars in cash inside this Wendy's bag. And again, I know what you're thinking. It was all legit, okay? Nothing, nothing shady going on. But there was something of great value inside something that was not of great value, right? And as you look around, not that we don't value each other, not that you don't all look very nice and pretty and handsome this morning, but sometimes we can look at the outward appearance and not value what's truly been placed inside each and every one. And guys, what has been placed inside each and every one is God himself. The Holy Spirit 
the presence of God unites us and puts us together. And, and in the context here specifically, another thing that kind of ties us together, yes, the Spirit is in us and that's the primary idea, but, but not just that, but that the Spirit is specifically given to help us overcome sin. That we are all united in a sense against this same enemy that is trying to destroy us. He's not just playing games. He's not just trying to knock us down. He's trying to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And the Bible says over and over again that the only way that we can overcome him is by he who lives in us. What is it? 1 John 4, 4. That greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. It is the presence of Christ, the presence of God, through the Holy Spirit living inside us is the only way that we can overcome the enemy. And so Paul goes on here, if you'll continue to read these next couple verses, not just talking about the enemy, but our fight against sin. He says, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead, he... I'm sorry, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, and the flesh is just that old sinful nature that lives inside of you that is still kind of alive but is being put to death. Charles Spurgeon described it as a dragon that has been dealt a fatal blow to the heart with a sword. It's dead, it's gone, it's gonna go down, but he's still flopping around, swinging his tail, breathing out a little bit of fire, trying to destroy and take down with him anybody that he can. He says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. What makes us sons? What makes us daughters? What makes us children? It is that the Spirit of God is inside of us and we are being led by the Spirit to overcome sin primarily, but also to obey Him. You know, guys, one of the the things, and I think it is happening here. I really do. Um, I would tell you if I didn't think it was, but I think it's something to be careful of, is that so many times I've seen this scenario is that anybody, but even primarily sometimes maybe like a young person, um, graduate from high school, maybe in college or something, and gets set on fire for Jesus, um, begins to follow them, and they believe that God is leading them to do something risky, to maybe take a semester off of school, or to maybe quit school altogether, or to maybe leave their, their secure job financially or whatever, and to go to the mission field, or to go get training, or to pursue some sort of outreach mission of some sort. And so many times I've seen it happen where in the, somebody feels something like that from God, and then they begin to share it with the rest of their family, their church family. And we can be really good at times of like, well, just be careful there. You know, brother, God gives us a brain too, and he just, you know, he calls us to exercise wisdom and to use wisdom. Yeah, and I would agree. He does give us a brain, and he does call us to think, and he does call us to use wisdom, and sometimes the Spirit of God leads us to do something that totally goes against common sense. Yes? This is what you see again over and over and over in the scriptures. And what I'm saying is that as the body of Christ with the same spirit dwelling in each one of us, when situations like that happen, 
I think, yeah, we have every right to say, man, brother, I'll be praying for you that the Lord will just lead you and guide you, and I, you know, I'm sure you've, you've thought through this, and you know, you're trying to exercise biblical wisdom, but brother, if the Lord is calling you to go, then go. Go do it. All those who are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. And this should be happening in the life of our church where God calls us to leave what's familiar, to leave what's easy, and to step out into something new. The body of Christ, the family of God, should not be holding that person back. They should be saying, brother, we got your back. Go for it. In Jesus' name. Amen? That's what you see throughout the book of Acts. Anyway, spend a lot of time on that. We'll move on. Secondly, thing that we see, we're, we're united by the Spirit, by the presence that lives inside of us, our fight against sin. But we're also united, we can celebrate together the access that we have to the Father. So Paul rolls here, again, verse 14, all those who are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Verse 15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. So he's contrasting not the spirit of fear that had to do with punishment. No, that's all been atoned for by the blood of Christ, and now his presence lives inside of you. And you now have the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we what? We cry out, Abba, Father. That word Abba is, is the word that was used Back in Jesus' day in the Aramaic for, for it, it, again, sometimes we say in the English that it means daddy. It, it just doesn't, it doesn't quite mean daddy, but yet it doesn't mean father. And that's why they don't ever translate it daddy because it doesn't quite mean daddy, but yet they don't put father in there because it doesn't quite mean father either. The idea is just simply like this. It's like, it's like a combination of daddy, but also the idea when you say it of my dad's stronger than your dad. Did you ever do that like when you were little kids? Like, you know, you're maybe fighting with somebody on the playground, you're like, my dad could beat up your dad, you know. It, it's kind of like that idea when we say Abba, yet it was, it was an intimate term that children would use to address their dads. And he, he says one of the things here that I'm saying that, that unites us is, yeah, we all have the same spirit, but we also all have the same access to our father, to Abba, that we don't have to schedule an appointment three weeks out for an hour and a half between 3.30 and 5 on a Tuesday afternoon. That every single one of us right now that knows Jesus Christ because of what he did, we have access to the throne of grace before which the Bible says we can find mercy and grace to what? To help us in our time of need. It is always there. And the same access that I, I have no special access because I'm a preacher. I have no special access because I'm a pastor. I promise you. Okay? You have the same access as me or as anybody else. And it's all because of the blood of Christ. Um, can I get those? Uh, or actually, just wait, Conrad. Never mind. I'll wait to share those verses in a little bit. But in Ephesians 2, verses 18 and 19, it says, For through him, through Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Again, that household just being the word, the word for family. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever read about Abraham Lincoln's youngest son, Tad Lincoln. Have you guys ever read anything about him? 
in history. Super interesting little kid. Um, I just reminds me, as I was thinking about it yesterday, I was like, we got a bunch of Tad Lincolns running around Mercy Hill here. But Abraham Lincoln took the White House, um, and about a year in, Tad was, I believe, only eight years old at the time, and he had an older brother, uh, Willie, uh, who was like 11 years old. And they both got what they think now was probably tuberculosis, and they didn't think that they were going to make it. Uh, tragically, one of Tad's older brothers, he had several brothers that were, that were much older, but, um, but Willie, his brother, just a couple years, three years older, died. And, but Tad survived. And so as a lot of kind of the, the story and historians recall, it was, it was kind of like, um, and, and you could totally understand why, uh, Abraham Lincoln and his wife um, just kind of, <laughs> you, you can imagine how much they loved Tad after, after losing their other son. And so they just kind of gave him free reign of the White House, and there was never much, there was never much discipline or correction. Uh, and some of, his, uh, some of this young man's escapades uh, in the White House were pretty, were pretty interesting. Uh, there was one time where they had been given some goats, and so he, he had these goats, and he played with them every day as pets. And one time, uh, Mrs. Lincoln was holding some sort of a very you know, formal reception in the East Room, and Tad somehow hooked him up to some sort of chair or a little cart and hooked these goats up and had them pull him like on a sleigh right through the East Room as everybody was, as all these dignitaries and everybody was, uh, you know, kind of mill, milling about. He just kind of, you know, like the parting of the Red Sea went right down, went right down through the middle. Um, another time, because he, he realized that people um, would give almost anything to see his father, uh, he, he had a charity that he liked very much. And it was, it was kind of the equivalent of the, the, the Salvation Army. Um, I forget what it's called right now, but but the Salvation Army during that time, during the Civil War. And so whenever somebody would come to the White House, you know, on formal business, not wanting to see the president, but maybe somebody else, he would go up to him and be like, hey, if you give me a nickel, I'll take you to see my dad. And they'd be like, okay. And so he, and so, so Abraham Lincoln for a while was like constantly, you know, his son was bringing in these people and he's like, how, how, you know, what, what's going on? Why is he doing this? And after a while he caught on that he was charging them <laughs> to, um, to come in, to come in and to see him. Um, there's another story where they were given a couple of turkeys, uh, specifically for Christmas dinner. Um, but, uh, Tad grew very fond of these turkeys. And, uh, so he pleaded their behalf when Abraham Lincoln, you know, told the guy to go out and butcher them so they could have them for dinner. And, uh, that was, uh, Abraham Lincoln actually issued his son an official presidential pardon on behalf of one of these, on behalf of one of these turkeys, uh, that they would not be, that they would not be killed. Um, and so there were stories like that, using, taking advantage of his access to the father. But then there were other stories, one in particular where there was a lady that he had somehow met that had, her husband was in jail and two of her kids, she had two children and they were poor and cold and starving and had nothing. And he went to his dad, this little 10, 11 year old boy at this time, and pled with his dad to pardon this man so that he could get out of jail and go, to, and, and go support his family. And Abraham Lincoln did it on behalf, on behalf of his son. And there's a bunch more stories like that. And as I was reading these the other day, it, it just made me think about this passage. And I thought, man, how are we using our access? To what ends are we using and stewarding 
the access that we have to the Father for the good of others. Because this is one of the primary jobs that he calls us to as a church, is to intercede, to pray on behalf of a lost and dying world. Uh, and sometimes, you know, I, I wonder if it's not kind of like we're, we're using all this great access that we have just to pardon a bunch of turkeys. I'm not speaking of people, I'm not calling them turkeys, but I'm saying like, like we're just, it's just like, like what are we doing with it? We have access to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And we have opportunity as his family, because of our relationship with him, to come before him and to plead with him to work, to pour out his spirit on behalf of a lost and dying world. And we don't have to make a formal appointment. There's nothing we have to do to earn it. All we have to say is, Abba, Father, would you please move here? Would you please use all of your power, all of your authority as the king to intercede on behalf of these people? So we're held together by this presence, and again, these all kind of overlap, this access that we have. Finally, we're also held together by this inheritance that is the exact same inheritance as Jesus has. And this is amazing. Guys, there's so much time we could spend on each one of these. We're going through them pretty quick. But he goes on here in verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then here's the implication, implication Paul makes. He says, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs or co-heirs. Or some of your translations might say joint heirs with Christ. Provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Conrad, if I can get those verses up on the screen now from Ephesians. Um, just follow along with me and, and, and read this here. He says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and of your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And if I had to sum that up, all Paul's saying is like, I pray that he would let you understand what I'm about to say. Here's what he wants them to have revelation of her to understand. I pray that you would have the eyes of your heart enlightened. Why? That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places? And make note of that. He raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Where is that? Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. So Paul's going to go on for a couple more verses here. This is the end of Ephesians chapter 1 and then the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2. Remember I said that when he raised Christ up, he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. And now Paul is speaking about us and our salvation. He says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And by grace you have been saved. And what did he do with us? And he raised us up with him 
and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Where is Christ seated right now with all power and all authority? He is seated at the Father's right hand. Where are you seated spiritually right now? You are seated at the Father's right hand. Yes, someday, perfectly, totally, fully, we will be seated with him. But right now, just as Christ is in heaven, but his spirit is also in us, he dwells in us, we are here on earth, but our spirit is also seated with him in heaven. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, this is our inheritance. And sometimes we sit around and we trifle and we fight over the dumbest stuff in our families, even in our church family. You know, James says, what, what is it that causes fights and quarrels among you? Is it not your evil desires that are within you? You lust and you want, and so you fight, you do whatever you need to do to take. You have not because you ask not. That, guys, we're seated with him, and he has invited us to co-rule with him through our prayers, and through the proclamation, and through the proclamation of the gospel. And again, all this was purchased by God in, this is one of my favorite little books. I read it over and over and over again, called The Prodigal God, Prodigal God, by, um, by Tim Keller. And in it, he just kind of goes through, kind of slows down, and brings out some of the nuance of the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. And one of the um, uh, most moving points that I think he makes in it is how um, our position as a co-heir with Christ or um, as a equal son with him came at the expense of our true older brother of, of Jesus himself. And so if you remember the story in Luke 15, obviously he's talking about there, there's two brothers, the younger one leaves, squanders everything, the older brother stays, but he's bitter at the father and everything when that younger son came back um, in order for the father to bring him back in, it would have been at the expense of that older son, right? So he already got his inheritance. He left, squandered it all, but now the father's bringing him back into the family with an equal, equal status, equal state as he was before. Where's his share coming from? It's coming from the older, it's coming from the older brother. But Tim Keller says this. Um, he says, by putting a flawed elder brother in the story, Jesus is inviting us to imagine and yearn for a true one, and we have him. He says, think of the kind of brother we need. We need one who does not just go to the next country to find us, but who will come all the way from heaven to earth. We need one who is willing to pay not just a finite amount of money, but an infinite cost to his own life to bring us into God's family, for our debt is so much greater. Either as elder brothers or as younger brothers, we have rebelled against the Father. We deserve alienation, isolation, and rejection. The point of the parable is that forgiveness always involves a price. Someone has to pay. There was no way for the younger brother to return to the family unless the older brother bore the cost himself. Our true elder brother paid our debt on the cross in our place. There Jesus was stripped naked of his robe and dignity so that we could be clothed with dignity and standing that we don't deserve. On the cross, Jesus was treated as an outcast so that we could be brought into God's family free by grace. There Jesus drank the cup of eternal justice so that we might have the cup of the Father's joy. There was no other way for the Heavenly Father to bring us in except at the expense 
of our true older brother. Amen? And so when we read, you know, passages like Romans 8, that literally like every word and every phrase is just a diamond, you know, it's just packed with, with value and infinite worth. It always comes back to what Jesus did. Amen? It always comes back to what he did. Worship team, you can come up and we'll, and we'll begin to close. Um, I just want you guys to rest this morning um, in the fact that God is our Father. And, and, and yes, I want, I want unity. I want there to be true love. I want there to be sincere love. You know, there, it's funny, in, later on in Romans chapter 12, Paul just gives a simple command. He says, love must be sincere. And uh, that sounds simple, but it's a problem, isn't it? Because we can fake it <laughs> a lot of times. We can pretend. But in order for love to be sincere, God has to do something, has to do something in our hearts. And I believe the only thing that has the power to change our hearts is the good news of the gospel, of his grace, of what he's done for us and how he loves us. And I, you know, again, just so we could leave here just rejoicing, I hope, one more story about Tad Lincoln. Um, when uh, Abraham Lincoln, as I'm sure everybody knows, was assassinated at the Ford Theater, that same night as he and his wife were at the Ford Theater and he was assassinated, little Tad Lincoln was over at another theater in another part of town um, watching another play called Aladdin and His Lamp. And... Uh, as the story goes, you know, this happened at the Ford Theater. News broke out, and Harold started running around town just announcing the president's been shot, the president's been shot. And they busted into the theater where Tad was and announced this, and they said it was dead silent. And then all of a sudden, little Tad, as you can imagine, began to cry and began, and began to weep. And supposedly later on um, that evening as he was, you know, at the hospital, he didn't see his dad, but there was, you know, a nurse attending to him outside as they were trying, you know, to save him, but couldn't. He said this, little Tad said this to a nurse. This is recorded in history. It says, Pa is dead, Tad told the nurse. I can hardly believe that I shall never see him again. And, and I just want you to listen for how he, how so much of this little boy's identity was wrapped up in his father. Okay, and understandably so, and as ours should be in our father. He says, I am only Tad Lincoln now, little Tad, like many other little boys. I am not the president's son now. I won't have many presents anymore. Well, I will try to be a good little boy and will hope to go someday to Pa and to Brother Willie in heaven. You know, as I read that, the other day, I mean, obviously that's, that's heartbreaking, you know, that any kid should have to endure something like that. But then I thought, man, guys, how good is the gospel, though, that our identity wrapped up in our heavenly Father, he will never be taken away from us. Guys, there is nothing, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He lives forever. Our position seated with him in the heavenly realms is secure. Nothing is going to change it. And so please, because of that good news, let's live lives that pour out everything 
that we have to love each other and the world in a way that honors and glorifies our Heavenly Father. Amen? Guys, you are secure. You are secure in Him. Nothing is going to change it. Father, we love you. We thank you for the good news of the gospel. Father, would you please unite us, unite us as a family around these wonderful truths. I pray that when we come together, Lord, even as now, God, as we're about to take communion and sing some more, I pray that we would sing and that we would worship with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength, knowing that you have purchased our right standing before you. And nothing, nothing can take it away. We love you, Lord. Please be glorified in us, your family. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You guys stand with me. If I can have those help and serve communion to come down. If you're visiting with us this morning, we take communion here every week. I just want to say we don't believe that taking these